Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Stay tuned to hear how you can get a copy of this program and other helpful documents. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Thank you, Tim. Like Tim said, I'm Carrie McCoy, and it's time for me to get up in your business. This show, Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, began with Entrepreneurs in Mind, a platform for me, a small business owner, and a guest to pay forward our experiential knowledge in a conversational way. As with all new endeavors, it's had some unexpected outcomes. Like, this show has a wide appeal to everyone, and I mean everyone, not just business owners, because everyone is inspired by everyday people's American-made stories. My guest today is an American-made man. He is our Arkansas House of Representative, representing the 33rd District Congressman Warwick Saban, who recently threw his hat into the ring as a candidate for mayor of Little Rock, Arkansas. Today, we are going to find out about his life, his accomplishments, and what led a boy born in New York City to live (laughs) and love Arkansas. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you may be asking yourself, what's this lady's story and why does she have a radio show? Well, Tim is here to tell you. Thank you, Carrie. Over 40 years ago, and with only $400, Carrie McCoy founded Arkansas Flag and Banner. During the last four decades, the business has grown and changed dramatically. From door-to-door sales, to telemarketing, to mail order and catalog sales, and now Flag and Banner relies heavily on the internet, including our newest feature, live chatting. Each decade required a change in sales strategy and procedures. Her business and leadership knowledge grew with time and experience, as well as the confidence to branch out into multimedia marketing that began with our nonprofit, Dreamland Ballroom, as well as our in-house publication, Brave Magazine, and this very radio show you're listening to right now. Each week on the show, you'll hear candid conversations between her and our guests about real-world experiences on a variety of businesses and topics that we hope you'll find interesting and inspiring. What I find encouraging about Carrie's story is that hard work really does pay off. Did you know that for nine years while starting Flag and Banner, she supplemented her income with many part-time jobs? That just shows that persistence and perseverance will prevail. Today, Flag and Banner has 10 departments and I have 25 coworkers, thus reminding us all that small businesses really are the fuel of our country's economic engine and they empower people's lives. If you would like to ask Carrie a question or share your story, you can send an email to questions at upyourbusiness.org. Thank you, Tim. My guest today is Arkansas House of Representative Wark Saban, who is running for city mayor of Little Rock, Arkansas. Wark was born in New York City. In 1993, he was chosen to represent New York State at Boys Nation, where he met President Bill Clinton on the White House lawn in the Rose Garden, 30 years to the day of the story we all know, when Bill Clinton, the Arkansas delegate to Boys Nation, met President John F. Kennedy. Somehow, and today we'll find out how, (laughs) Saban ended up going to college at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, where he was elected president of the student body and graduated summa cum laude and valedictorian with a degree in 
of course, political science. His education and accolades as a young man are far-reaching. In 1997, he won the Harry S. Truman Scholarship. In 1998, he was named to the USA Today Academic All-Star Team and won the Marshall Scholarship for Study Abroad at the University of Oxford. While in England, Sabin was a speechwriter for U.S. Ambassador Philip, is it Later? Later. Later, for Philip Later. By the time he left Oxford in June of 2000, he had a Master's of Arts in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. His career life is just as impressive as his school days. After Oxford, Wark moved to Washington, D.C. as a speechwriter for Congressman Marion Barry. It was there he was offered a job as Director of Development for the new Clinton Foundation in Arkansas. This would relocate him back in Arkansas. Since that move in 2002, he has had numerous empowering positions. Many of you may remember him as the turnaround publisher of Oxford American Magazine. Today, while serving in the Arkansas House of Representatives, Wark also has a day job as Senior Director of U.S. Programs at Winrock International, where he researches and implements programs aimed at helping rural America. I want to hear about that. It is a pleasure to welcome to the table a motivated man, a man of the people, Arkansas Congressman Wark Saban. Thank you, Carrie. That was great. It is great, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) People always come here and they're kind of like, wow, y'all got a lot going on over there. Yeah, it's actually a pretty exciting little environment right here. You got a lot of people here. I know, it's fun. Um, First things first, you grew up in New York City. Uh Uh-huh. How did you wind up in Arkansas? Well, I mean, I always tell people there's a long story and a short story, and you kind of hit on the long story part of it because I got to meet Bill Clinton between my junior and senior of high school, and that was pretty enlightening to me. I'd never met a politician before. You know, New York's a lot different than Arkansas. You don't get, at least I didn't get exposed to politics. I never even met my state representative or my state senator, much less a congressman or a governor or mayor or anything like that. So to get to meet the president of the United States was pretty remarkable for a 16-year-old. And when I went back for my senior year of high school at the time, I just really wanted to go to an Ivy League school. You know, I'd worked really hard, you know, on my grades. And but when I got you, a lot of, go ahead. When you went back to where? For my senior year of high school. Oh, okay. Yeah, just because, you know, we I'd met Bill Clinton during the summer. Then you'd gone back to be your senior year in high school. Okay. Uh-huh. And then I was getting a lot of nice scholarship offers from different schools around the country. And one of them was Arkansas. And I was like, well, that's where Bill Clinton's from. I really like the, him, and so I'm, I bet I like that place. So they were offering me a trip to visit Fayetteville, and I thought, you know, I'd like to check it out. And so I, I took the trip. And the truth is, I mean, I just fell in love with Fayetteville from the moment I got there. And even more importantly, I met a woman named Diane Blair, who you probably maybe knew at one point. She was a political science professor up there and been involved in so many different projects here in Arkansas. And she and I really hit it off. And she said, you know, if you come to school here, you know, I'll be your advisor and you can work at the White House in the summers because she was good friends with the Clintons. And so, um, I mean, it it was really more of a, a heart choice than a head choice for me because it just felt right in a way that I still can't even explain to this day but um, I never looked back and decided to go to school even though everybody back in New York was kind of wondering what was going on. Yeah because you're probably a straight A student in New York City and you're going to go to Podunk Arkansas they thought right and and into the mountains of the Ozarks. Mm -hmm. That was kind of what it was like I mean that's what they thought but you know I'll tell you I, I was the valedictorian in my high school and when I gave my speech kind of you know as a as a what's the polite way to put it as a kind of a 
Oh, your, I don't know. In your face? In your face, thank you, uh, kind of thing. I, I quoted Fulbright, and I quoted Clinton. I quoted all these Arkansans in my speech when I was graduating because, you know, everybody, again, thought I was a little nutty to, to come down here, but it's been the best thing I could have ever done. Oh, we're so glad you did. Oh, uh, you. Your dad's an artist in New York, right? That's right. I met your dad at your wedding. Yeah. Charming. Good guy. Yeah. Both, of your, both your parents are charming. Yeah, I'm a lucky guy. I've got great parents and a great brother and sister, too. Is he do that for a living? Does he get paid? Is he a... Yeah, I mean, you know, when he started out, kind of like you, he had to have a bunch of part-time jobs because, you know, he had actually gotten a law degree and he had been a lawyer and then kind of decided, I guess right around the time he was about 30 years old, that he wanted to be an artist. And so he definitely had to make ends meet at first, but then eventually kind of broke through. And, you know, as I was growing up, that's what he did for a living. So there's two of you gentlemen in your family that make decisions on the heart. That's a good point. That's mm -hmm. a good point. Yeah. I mean, it's not all heart. I mean, I think that, you know, there's, you know, obviously thinking through what you're going to do, but I think you do have to be willing to take risks and kind of follow your dreams too. That's exactly right. That's a sign of all successful people. Mm -hmm. um, it's the land of opportunity in, little, in Arkansas too, don't you think? I definitely, I've always thought that from the moment I got here and, and I think, you know, sometimes we don't realize how blessed we are to be able to um, have the access that we have to people. I mean, you know, when you th you mentioned your experience, you're kind of paying it forward. You know, you're using everything that you learned and helping other people figure out how they can do the same kind of things. And and I found that exists everywhere in Arkansas. That that nobody will tell you that they won't sit down and talk to you. And a lot of people become mentors and they help help again pay it forward and and bring other people up behind them. While you were at the University of Arkansas, you started. You campaigned to have all the schools in the University of Arkansas system officially observe the federal holiday that honors Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That's right. And you want to know why or yeah. how? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you're how old are you? Eight, nineteen? Well, I mean, by the time I was student body president, I guess I was twenty. But you know, I had arrived in Fayetteville for my freshman year, and you know, we weren't celebrating Martin Luther King Day that that freshman year of college, you know, nineteen ninety four, ninety five. But you did up in New York. Yes, I grew up, you know, mm -hmm. we had the holiday. I mean, Arkansas, I found out, was one of the only states in the country that didn't celebrate it. And, you know, I thought that was odd for two reasons. One is it didn't correspond with what I knew about the people from Arkansas that I met who, you know, really were very tolerant and accepting. And, and so the image that the state had because it didn't celebrate the holiday to me didn't correspond with, you know, the people. And so it gives us a bad reputation, makes us look bad. Um... And number two, the university itself had this really good reputation. It was the first Southern university that admitted an African-American student back in 1948 when it admitted Silas Hunt into the law school. Wow. So, and, and a lot of people still don't know that to this I day. I didn't know that, yeah. So, you know, I was like, okay, the university's got this great reputation. It actually was very progressive when it comes to um, that particular issue. So why aren't we commemorating the main civil rights leader of our nation's history and so when I got to be student body president, I made that a big part of my platform. And, and by the way, another thing that had occurred to me was, you know, knowing what I knew by then about how African-American students felt at the University of Arkansas. You know, I, I learned from talking to my friends that, you know, Fayetteville was a very different place. Lily White, barely any African-American, especially back in the 90s, there's yeah. hardly anybody there. So we really should be bending over backwards to do everything we can to make the place more welcoming. Yeah. And by not commemorating Martin Luther King Day, to me, it just felt like we were not doing that. 
you also became the president of the Young Democrats in Fayetteville. Yeah, that was that was before I was student body president. That's right. So you always knew that you wanted to be in politics, I guess. Well, yes and no. I mean, it was a it, to be honest with you, it was a weird thing because when I was a kid, I loved to write, and so I, I thought I would definitely be in journalism. And this is like a theme that has repeated itself throughout my life because um, first thing I did when I arrived at Fayetteville was I signed up to write for the newspaper. And that's what I did. I wrote for the newspaper the first couple of years, and I think I got pressed into getting into student government because my fraternity house needed a representative, and nobody wanted to do it. And they're like, "Work, you do it." So I did <laughs> You're it. You're an overachiever. You do it. Well, basically, and so they they you know had me in there, and then the next thing I know, you know, a couple of years later, I'm running for student body president. But um, you know, it, this has happened over and over again with me. Every time I you know, basically try to get into journalism and writing something else kind of sidelines me. But, you know, I did write for the Arkansas Times, as we'll probably get to, and I did get to publish the Oxford American, but... You um, you have a theme of writing. When I was reading about you, you have a definite theme of writing, and I kind of wondered why you were a politician. I can't yeah. believe you already got to that, because I was like, he's a writer. Why is he a politician? It just keeps kind of happening. You can't help it. I guess <laughs> it's in your destiny. Well, we'll see. So you ended up uh, getting grants and getting to go to Oxford. Right. And um, tell us about that. And over there you were a writer. You were a speech writer for the U.S. Ambassador Philip Leiter. Yeah, that was really neat. I mean, you know, and and that happened again because I was trying to get into journalism. What had happened was I was over there, um, and for my first year in Oxford, I actually applied to have an internship at Foreign Affairs Magazine for the summer in between my first and second years. And that's a very hard internship to get because there's only one of them. And I'll tell you a funny story that's actually very Arkansas related. Um, I had applied for that and even being, you know, Marshall Scholar at Oxford and everything, apparently my application got thrown in the trash immediately because they saw University of Arkansas on it and they just thought, no way, this guy's going to do it. The, sa- the same day they threw my application out, Without me even knowing, uh, Mac McLarty, who I'd worked for before, apparently he took it upon himself, didn't even tell me to do this, to call over there to recommend me. And he reached the guy that had thrown my application in the trash and just said, hey, I'm Mac McLarty, and I just think you should you know, give consideration to this guy, Warwick. And so the guy fished my application <laughs> out of the garbage can. And long story short, after an interview and all that, I got the internship. So I you know, get this journalism internship, and then my second year at Oxford, I'm looking to kind of find a journalism job. And I'm talking to the bureau chief of Time Magazine in London and all that. And apparently he ran into the ambassador one day and said, hey, I know this guy. Um, you know, I know you're looking for a speechwriter. And next thing you know, I had an interview and a chance to do that. And that was really neat because I got to work in the embassy in London. And I was it was a really hard time, though, because I was getting up at like four in the morning to walk across Oxford to catch the train to London because I had to be at the embassy by 730 in the morning. And I would do that work all day and then come back and do my studies. And so it was... Do you need a lot of sleep? No, I don't. I don't. Well, you see, I got this big coffee in front of me. I do see that. <laughs> I live on coffee. I don't sleep much, but I love it. I love everything I get to do, and I feel lucky to do it. Wow, this is a yeah. great place to take a break. Every over, every person I know that's successful just works hard. I mean, there is no secret. Well, that's true. I mean, there's some secrets, but that's the one, the number one one. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Warwick Saban, Senior Director of U.S. Programs at Winrock International and Arkansas's 33rd District House of Representative. More recently, Warwick put his name on the ballot as Little Rock, Arkansas's candidate for mayor in the November 2018 upcoming election. We'll talk more about that after the break. You're listening to Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of flagandbanner.com. If you miss any part of the show or want to learn more about Up In Your Business, go to flagandbanner.com and click Radio Show. 
or you can subscribe through YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud, simply by searching for flagandbanner.com. Lots of listening options. We'll be right back. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with Senior Director of U.S. Programs at Winrock International and Arkansas Congressman Wark Saban. He is running for City Mayor of Little Rock, Arkansas in the November 2018 election. Okay, let's pick up where we left off. We talked about you going to how you got to, how this New York guy got to the Arkansas via the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. Then you went to Oxford and, um, and was a speech writer over there. Now mm-hmm. you've graduated from college with a degree in uh, a master in philosophy, politics, and economics. You've been just killing it in your college career. And it's time for you to get a real job. That's right. The, <laughs> the, as if those weren't all real jobs, they were. The fate, As fate takes you to Washington, D.C. as a speech writer for Congressman Marion Barry. Is that what you wanted? Well, I mean, it's funny because... You know, the job was offered to me, and it seemed like a right thing to do because the ambassador I was working for in, in London, you know, his term was going to end at the end of that year. This was 2000, and so, you know, Clinton was going to be leaving office. And I love the idea of, number one, you know, working for an Arkansas congressman because I'd be able to stay connected to the state, and especially the area that Congressman Barry represented because it was the Delta part of Arkansas. And for me, I mean, that's, again, you know, we're working there now at Winrock and um, I love the culture of the Delta and I love, you know, everything about the history of the Delta. But, you know, obviously the economy needs help. And so mm-hmm. for me, you know, I really was looking forward to the opportunity to be part of, you know, trying to do what I could to help as part of the political system and, and also learn more about it. So I was excited to take that job. Did you apply for it or did they reach out to you? They reached out to me. Well, isn't that good when people start calling you and going, <laughs> hey, I've got a job. You want it? Yeah. It's um, nice. So you met Bill Clinton when you were New York delegate in Boys Nation. Did he remember you? I mean, I'm sure that he probably said he did. I don't know if he did or he didn't, but he's kind of got notorious for having an amazing memory. So he, he very does. well might have. Yes, ma'am. I can. You can run <laughs> into him. He's notorious for remembering people's names. It's, it's amazing. It's I don't weird. know that anybody else can do that. You know, I took that Dale Carnegie course. It didn't work for me to remember people's names. Did everybody take that course? No. Did you take that course? I never took it, no. Oh, that's, it's, it's, it's about how to remember people's names. So talk about the years that you were in Washington, D.C. You uh, were only there for two years. Yeah, and it, but, it, you know, it was great because, you know, I loved working for Congressman Barry. I learned a ton, you know, being on Capitol Hill and being part of everything that happened there. Um, unfortunately, while I was there, uh, the September 11th attacks happened. And so, of course, oh, I'll never Oh, you were in New York that. during that? Well, I was in D.C. Or D.C., yeah. And, of course, you know, it, it was pretty crazy even that day. I mean, I'll never forget... And we don't have to go through all the details, but, you know, the Pentagon was attacked Mm -hmm. and we were evacuated out of our offices there. And then two days later, you know, there was the anthrax incident. And I don't know if some of your listeners are old enough to remember this, but, you know, that somebody had mailed anthrax to Capitol Hill and they basically shut down all the offices for really a couple months. And so there wasn't uh, any opportunity to go to work um, there. But during that time, I ended up coming back to Arkansas temporarily to manage a congressional campaign for my friend Mike Haythorn, who was running up in northwest Arkansas. And so I did that. It was a special election. Um, so it was basically from September until 
uh, Thanksgiving. And so I was there and then I went back to DC, but then not too long after that, um, I was offered the job to be director of development for the Clinton Foundation. So, so someone came and offered you a job again. Yes. Uh, See, that's why you should work hard all the time. You never know who's watching. You never true. know who's watching. So that's you offered true. another job to move back to Arkansas, and you jumped at it. I absolutely did. I mean, it, 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 President Clinton was starting his foundation. Uh, the goal of the foundation was obviously to you know, do the programs in the areas that he cared about, but also to build the presidential library at the time. And So it hadn't um, been built yet? No, in you fact. You were one of the founders. That's right. So there were, there were originally three employees of the Clinton Foundation, Stephanie Street, Shannon Butler, who's now Shannon Butler Dixon, and myself. What about Skip Rutherford? Skip actually was not an employee. He was, uh, I think, on the board, but um, not an employee of the foundation. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Um, and you stayed there? Uh-huh. I was there through uh, 2004 when the library uh, opened. And then I finally uh, decided I wanted to do uh, fulfill my journalism craving. And so I went over to the Arkansas Times as an associate editor, which was an awesome experience because... I got to write, you know, whether it was cover stories, I had a weekly opinion column. Um, I started the uh, blog that's on the Arkansas Times website, you know, because we got to revamp the website at the time. And, um, and I just loved it. I loved writing and covering issues and being involved in that uh, kind of part of public discourse. How much do you like to write a day or how much do you write a day? Mm, I mean, I probably don't write as much as I'd like to just because I'm so very busy right now with so many things. But um, you know, I still, even for my campaign purposes, I mean, I write up a lot of things and, um, you can ask the people who kind of work with me that I kind of prefer to write stuff up myself so that it's in my own words and it's my own thoughts. And, mm-hmm. um, sounds like you, yeah, I mean, it's just communication to me is just so important and something that a lot of people take for granted. And communication is also a two way street. I mean, it's not just about you telling people things you, you need to be listening to people. Communication is probably more about listening than talking, which has taken me 60 years to figure (laughs) out. It's true. Um, Right. So you are in your dream job, but you leave it. I did. I left it. um, You're working for the Arkansas Times newspaper, writing all the time, loving it. I can see it in your face. Oh, yeah. No, it was fantastic. I mean, you know, there there were a couple reasons why, you know, I decided I kind of needed to make a change after a few years there. Um, but again, you know, I did get offered a job to work over at UCA uh, to kind of direct their communications. And, um, I enjoyed that part of it. And that's actually what led right into the Oxford American. Um, because at the time, you know, the Oxford American was based at UCA. Oh, that's right. And I'll never forget this, but one day I was, um, just working and, um, somebody walked in my office and said, Hey, uh, the Oxford American is bankrupt and in debt because it's been embezzled from and you like the magazine don't you and I'm like yeah of course I do and they're like well will you just kind of take it over and try to fix it and just figure it out and I'd never done you know anything like that before I'd always been on the writing side but never on the business side of publishing but I just said yes because I really didn't know even what that meant and just kind of got into it but you know as you know the Oxford American has a fantastic staff um, a great reputation. People love the magazine. I'd always loved it just because I'd subscribed to it since I was, I think, a freshman in college and just, just loved it so much. And, you know, I just took it as a challenge to try to figure out, you know, okay, what's the deal here? How can we get it going? And to make a very, very long story short, you know, we were able to overcome that initial challenge uh, through, you know, raising money and other things. But then it was about really coming up with a business model that would work. And at the time, there were two things working against us. Number one, when I took over the magazine, it was 2008. So we were just going into a 
big recession. Oh, but, wow, yeah. But then, of course, also print publishing was going through its most difficult period because, you know, advertising was being cut, circulation was being cut, the whole transformation to digital. Everybody's come to their senses since then. I think so. I think mm. things have kind of evened out now, but mm. it was really bad at mm. the time. It was. Um, but like I said, we had a great staff, I mean, good people. And what we started to learn was that the brand of the magazine, sort of its identity, was so valuable because, again, people cared about it so much, they trusted it. It was also very unique because it represented really the best of Southern culture, um, you know, at a very kind of high level, whether you're talking about writing or music or art or photography or food or any of that kind of stuff. So we started doing events in all different places where people could come experience what they were reading about in the magazine. So they could come taste the food, hear a band, you know, meet a writer and listen to the writer read their work or see the photography, the art. And we were doing this in places like New Orleans, Atlanta, Nashville, even New York City, all these places. And they were very successful. And we were actually, you know, our net profit, so to speak, from those events was very substantial because of the sponsorships we were getting and all that. So one day I was saying, you know, well, gosh, what if we could do this 365 days a year? What if we could have our own venue where we were doing music and people were eating and, you know, experiencing all this culture all the time? And that's where the idea for South on Main came from. And so um, I applied for a grant, and we won the first ever Art Place grant that's ever been awarded in the state of Arkansas, and it was to renovate the old Juanitas buildings on Main Street. And I obsessed over you know every detail of that, as you may remember, Carrie, because <laughs> you've had your own renovation project going for a long, long time. And um, we got that done, and we opened up you know the restaurant and got the programming going. And I'm just so proud of that to this day because Oxford American is the only magazine in the country that has its own venue. And it's a very unique concept. It's right on Main Street, you know, in South Main, you know, part of Little Rock. And I think it's contributed a lot to the revitalization of this neighborhood. Absolutely. I think it contributes so much to the culture. And obviously, it's also helped to stand up the Oxford American brand, which was the whole point to begin with. And it's everything that you said at the beginning of the show that you loved about Arkansas. You loved the culture. You you felt like it, 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 it had this feeling about it that other states don't realize and so you now you're able to communicate that to lots of people through your magazine and then you branched out through other uh, forms of advertising like you just said through trade shows I guess or venues that you went and did and we just went and created the events ourselves I mean you know Ray and Kathleen and all them I mean they used to pack up the van and Mm -hmm. fill it up and you know I mean, we had a lot of fun. You had a great time. It was a lot of work. I know. It was a lot of fun because we were hanging out with, I mean, musicians and artists and chefs and all these folks, and everybody's just there to say, hey, you know, the South kicks butt. I always used to say, you know, you go outside of the United States and you ask people about American culture, inevitably they are going to talk about Southern culture because they're going to talk about barbecue and fried chicken. They're going to talk about blues or jazz. You know, they're going to talk about Faulkner or Welty or... It's always going to be a Southerner. So, like, Never we define that. we define American culture to the rest Never of the world. Never thought about that. They do yeah. always ask me about Texas. Well, that's the other thing. We, we're gonna we're gonna let that one slide. But <laughs> but do. really, I think Southern culture is what it really stands out to people when they're you know looking at the United States of America, where we define the culture. Interesting. I never, mm-hmm. never, ever thought about that. So then you you leave Oxford America, which I'm shocked by, again, looking at your face and your passion about <laughs> it. So you've left two jobs that you are in love with, and now you've started the Arkansas Regional Innovation yeah. Hub yeah. in North Little Rock? Yeah, in North Little Rock, right across the street from Verizon. And what made that transition? Well, I mean, there were a few things. So 
and and let's sort of just definitely be frank about stuff. I mean, I've had these great opportunities and I love them, but sometimes when you're doing work at the intensity level that, you know, I tend to do things, um, and you're also dealing with creative people and all that. I mean, you know, one year is, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a dog's life. Like one year is like 10 years. <laughs> and That's so true. I, and on top of that, I mean, you may remember at the Oxford American, we went through, you know, this turmoil with our editor and, oh, yeah, forgot you know, about and that. there were just all these things. So, you know, I did five years of taking the magazine from bankruptcy, creating South on Main. During a recession, during a business model change in print. Sure. Yeah, during the toughest times. So, so five years felt longer than five years, I think. So I was definitely ready to do something kind of different. And the Regional Innovation Hub came out of the idea that, you know, by that time I was in the legislature because I'd gotten elected in 2012. Oh, you had, okay. Uh-huh. And so I'd been seeing all this stuff around the country that I thought was really interesting because, in essence, all of these big cities had what were called co-working spaces where, you know, entrepreneurs were getting access to what they needed to start businesses. There were these things called maker spaces where people were getting access to very advanced technology and other things they needed to prototype inventions and create new products. There were these arts cooperatives where people could get access again to, you know, the equipment and other things they needed Supplies. to do art. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, we don't have any of those things here. So the idea was, what if we could kind of create one facility that had all three of those things in it? And, you know, because basically we needed to catch up. And so to make a long story short, you know, that's what I was able to do. We were able to take this old hundred year old warehouse that was sitting there empty in downtown North Little Rock. And put in and, technology, arts, and what was the other one? Uh, entrepreneurship Entrepreneur. and co-working, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was terrific because, you know, in a very short period of time, I was able to sort of raise the money and get that whole thing set up. And, you know, it's been a terrific addition. And one of the things that I wasn't expecting when I started was that we were going to have so much stuff for kids. Because at first, what I was thinking about was adult entrepreneurs, you know, people who were, again, starting businesses or creating new products. But the second we got the doors open on that place, we had parents and teachers and kids and principals, all these different people saying, hey, are you going to have anything for the kids? Because, you know, we're, we don't know how to get them exposed to 3D printing or computer coding or all these other things. And we were like, well, yeah, let's do that. So we did after school programs and school field trips and summer camps and coding workshops and robotics competitions. And, you know, now the place now it's 50, 50 kids and adults, which is a really neat and again, unique thing. Like in the United States, there's not a facility that has all the things we have under one roof, nor is there a facility that does it for both adults and youth. Wow, you are such a out-of-the-box thinker. And, and now you've learned how to be a teacher and educator. You've, well, sorry, I wouldn't claim. I think a lot of what I do, though, is kind of create the environment for other people to do what they do well. And this led you to become a director at the Winrock Win um, International because they ended up purchasing it, I think. In essence, yes. I mean, they basically... They liked it. They saw it. That's right. They, they actually came to us and... and they do so. Winrock does a lot of work internationally, and a lot of their work similarly is about you know economic empowerment and trying to help people in all these, in essence, third world countries. And so we um, were a model that they really were interested in because they figured you know if it could work here, it could work in Asia and Africa and other places like that. So they came in and what did they do? Purchase the nonprofit, or how do you do? Or you it, just assign it over to them? Or? In essence, yeah. I mean, it was we. I think we called it a combination. Um, you know, you could call it an absorption, but in essence, you know, instead of the hub having to exist by itself as a you know nonprofit entity and having to raise its own money and all of that, 
it became part of Winrock. And so they funded essence, it. Yeah. And and it wasn't the first time Winrock had done that. Um, there are a couple of other entities, the American Carbon Registry. Uh, Winrock had absorbed as well as a thing called the Wallace Center that helps people create local food systems and all of that. So it wasn't the first time they'd done that. And then you left that job at the Hub and went to work for Winrock. Yes. Although, you know, the Hub is still sort of part of a portfolio of programs under, under you. our domestic programs. Yes. So, so you are still got your finger in the pie. Yeah. I, still, I mean, I do what I can to, to help and make sure. But we've got great people over there, too. So that's the other thing. I don't have to, you know, be in the mix uh, in such a... Mm-hmm. micromanaging way because we've got great people that's there. the strength of a true leader is to be able to teach to somebody else and move up and then teach to somebody else and then move up i mean that everybody that comes in here is a teacher well and i think and you you probably can relate to this but i think the best thing you can do is create a situation where if god forbid something happened to you tomorrow that everything would be just fine absolutely mm-hmm. some people get that kind of backwards they're like i want to be everything and i don't want anybody to be able to do what i can do because job security and it's exactly the opposite right. the more you teach and train the more you move up and if you don't do that you'll stay you'll stagnant right there That's right. all right this is a great place to take a break when we come back we will continue our conversation with congressman Wark saban senior director of u.s programs at winrock international and arkansas's 33rd district house of representative he is also a candidate in the November 2018 upcoming election for city mayor of Little Rock, Arkansas. We are going to talk about that when we come back after the break. You're listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. If you miss any part of this show or want to learn more about Up In Your Business, go to flagandbanner.com and click on Radio Show. Or you can subscribe through YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud, and more simply by searching Flag and Banner. Lots of listening options. Arkansas Flag and Banner is proud to underwrite Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. McCoy began this broadcast a year and a half ago with the intention of offering a mentoring platform for those with an entrepreneurial spirit. Through candid conversation and interesting interviews with business and community-minded Arkansans, listeners gain insight into starting and running a business, the ups and downs of risk-taking, and the commonalities of successful people. Carrie McCoy, founder and president of Arkansas Flag and Banner, believes in paying knowledge and experience forward and developed this radio show as a means of doing so. The biographies, life experiences, and wisdom of her guests would likely go unheard if not for this venue. Rarely do people open up for an hour to an audience about their life, mistakes, triumphs, and pitfalls. This unique radio show allows the listener intimate access into the stories of prominent leaders in our state. I am Adrian McNally, manager of the Arkansas Flag and Banner Showroom and Gift Shop, located on the first floor of the historic Taborian Hall on the corner of 9th and State Streets in downtown Little Rock, Arkansas. In business for 43 years, we offer an old school shopping experience with front door parking, clerks to help you, and department store variety. Open to the public Monday through Friday, 8 to 5.30, and Saturday, 10 to 4. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with Senior Director of U.S. Programs at Winrock International and Arkansas Congressman Wark Saban, who is running for City Mayor of Little Rock in Arkansas in the November 28th election. When we left, we were talking about you've gone to work for Winrock International, uh, and you're over the Delta. You kind of organize... Um, what did you, what did you, what did you kind of, your director of? Well, my title is director of U.S. programs, and, and that's kind of the domestic work that Winrock does here in the U.S. But um, 
a lot of our work is just driven around community and economic development in rural areas. And, you know, it's something I, I talk about a lot because, you know, we have a lot of efforts going on in urban areas around the country that are supported pretty strongly, but our rural areas are really left out. And if you look at all the disparities in our country, whether it's economic, whether it's educational, whether it's health, um, even the political divide in our country, when you look at the map of red and blue, um, it tends to pretty much follow rural versus urban. And, and I think yeah. that, you know, we've not necessarily, you know, done what we should be doing for our rural areas. In a lot of ways, you know, we support a lot of efforts even internationally that we don't do domestically. And, you know, I see the rural areas of our state as having, you know, so much potential, um, especially now, you know, in the Internet age when it's possible for people to work from anywhere and mm -hmm. want to have a certain quality of life. But again, we haven't invested in that infrastructure, so we don't have high quality broadband Internet in rural areas of the country. And, and I think that nowadays is not only a communications problem, but it's an education problem because there's so much education delivery over the broadband Internet now that's a health problem because of telemedicine. Um, obviously, it's a co commerce problem because so much of our commerce is transacted over the Internet. So this is, the, to me, the rural electrification issue of our time. Oh, that's a good way of putting it. Well, because, you know, they made the same arguments 100 years ago when they said, you know, well, we don't want to run electricity out to all these places because it's expensive and nobody lives out there. And, you know, we don't want to do it. But, you know, Roosevelt made it happen. Dale and Bumpers of Arkansas made it happen in Arkansas. Yeah. I mean, it was a it was definitely a, an effort that, you know, needed leadership to to have, you know, occurred. But nowadays we would never think about not extending electricity somewhere but we're doing the same thing around broadband when broadband is just as essential right now and is going to be even more essential as we go forward and so you know we need to make sure we're, we're attending to that so that's you know something that i've worked on in the legislature as well as now at winrock and you know there's just so many more things we can do to promote again entrepreneurship and small business in our rural communities i've never thought about uh the internet as part like uh, as in comparison to electrifying rural areas but it's exactly like that it is it's the same thing and i when you were talking earlier i was like why are winrock spending all their money on other countries why aren't they just doing it right here <laughs> so i'm glad to see that they're doing that so in january 2013 you said that or in 2012 you said you were still working at oxford mm -hmm. magazine and you ran for the for um representative position i did why? Well, I, you know, it's interesting because at the time I'd probably gotten as far away from thinking I would ever run for office as I ever had at that point because I was so into my career and running the business of the magazine and all of that. Um, but, you know, uh, the seat where I live was coming open because of term limits. And there were some folks that encouraged me to run. And when I got to thinking about it, I mean, for me, what I love about public service is what I love about all the things that we've been talking about. It's the ability to do good for your community, the ability to scale up an idea. Um, you know, to me, I, I don't, I can't live in a place and not want to make it a better place and not want to, you know, create more opportunity for others. And to me, you know, public service is one of the best ways to do that. So you have, I went to your website and mm -hmm. I looked at your real results page and yeah. you have things that you've done. Ethics reform is mm -hmm. a biggie. Uh, jobs and entrepreneurship we've talked about energy government transparency education uh, what do you want to talk about which one are you most proud of well I'm proud of all of it I mean one thing I so and just so I can tell your listeners if you don't mind so the website is sabinformayor.com s-a-b-i-n-f-o-r-m-a-y-o-r.com and she's talking about the real results thing which mm -hmm. you can click on at the top and what I'm proud of first of all is that you know I came into the legislature in the minority it's actually the first time the Democrats have been in the minority in 138 years. 
And my first term, uh uh-huh, it was 51.49 in the House. My second term, it was 64.36. And now in my third term, it's 76.24. So I'm in a super minority now. So all throughout there, I was working in the minority, yet I was able to pass all of this significant legislation that you were talking about that you can see on my website. And and I'm proud of all of it because it all is, again, part of creating more opportunity for people in the state. And, you know, whether it's, again, you know, creating a new energy economy, whether it's, you know, making our government more transparent and more ethical or whether it's uh, making it easier to start a business or, um, you know, kind of grow a business here in the state. I mean, that's really what's been motivating me. And I think when you have good ideas and you can work well with other people and you can convince them of the merits of those ideas and you can get stuff done no matter what party you're in and all of that. You've been known for being able to work across the table on these important issues, which you just talked about. Uh, I had some quotes somewhere about how you were written up as the up and coming freshman in the, in the house. Um, so how are you able to do that? Why can you work across the aisle and nobody else can? Well, I don't know if anybody else, I mean, I think there are a lot of people who can, I mean, to be honest with you, I I just think, you know, a lot of it is just about having the patience, again, to listen to other people, um, to not always think that you have all the answers going into it. I mean, you can do your research and you can be prepared, but you also have to be willing to be flexible. And that's how our system was designed. Um, But I do think, you know, a lot of it, like you said, also, is just the hard work. Mm -hmm. I think people respect you when they see that you've put the time and effort in and that, you know, I always tell people when it comes to the legislature, but also everything else I do, I never regret that extra meeting or that extra phone call. Um, cause sometimes that's how the deal is done. You know, so I think sometimes people get tired of, um, working on an issue cause it gets frustrating and, you know, they think, Oh, if we can't just come to agreement right here, then let's just throw our hands up and walk away. But you know, there's some of these issues, you know, I had to meet, you know, many, many times with people, until we got to the point where we could make it happen. But then we did it, and we got it done, and that's what we're here to do. What committee are you on? Um, well, right now I'm on the state agencies committee, um, you know, in the House. Um, I'm also, I also serve on the joint budget committee. So. And so your work you do at your real job is out in the Delta mostly. Mm-hmm. But the work that you do at the legislature is is you are the 33rd district is Hillcrest in yeah. Little Rock. It's Hillcrest, Leewood, Briarwood, Hall High, Capitol View, Stiff Station, downtown, and the state capitol. That's true. So they're not really, they don't overlap really. No, not at all. In fact, I mean, I represent probably one of the, probably the densest, most urban district in the state. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, but I don't know. It's I, I think if you have kids, you know, you don't love one kid more than the other. I, I think <laughs> I love you know, the rural part of Arkansas, and I love the part that I represent here in Little Rock. And that's another thing that's, I think, important about working in that environment is understanding both. You know, I, I think our state has a history of there being a divide sometimes between Little Rock and the rural areas. And sometimes Little Rock actually gets the short end of the stick because, you know, there are more rural representatives than urban mm-hmm. ones. And But Little Rock doesn't do itself any favor sometimes by trying to throw its weight around. And what I'm looking forward to when I'm running for mayor is having a more cooperative and collaborative relationship with our federal representatives, with our state elected officials and our legislature and our county elected officials and saying, what can we do to all help each other? Because, you know, if Little Rock does poorly, it makes the state look bad. And Little Rock certainly doesn't want to be impediment to good stuff happening in the rest of the state. So why don't we all just figure out a way to work together? And I've gotten a lot of great feedback from everybody from our U.S. senators, our U.S. congressmen, our governor, 
my legislative colleagues, our county officials, everyone is excited about it. So are the other city cities and counties around us, you know, cities of Conway and Benton, Bryant, Lono, Cabot, Mayflower, they all are like, we want to work with Little Rock, but I think we need the leadership in Little Rock that can build those relationships like I've done in the legislature and get things done. Let me tell everybody that you're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Senior Director of U.S. Programs at Winrock International and Arkansas Congressman Wark Saban, who is running for City Mayor of Little Rock, Arkansas in the November 2018 election. So I think you just pretty much told us why you want to be the mayor. I read on your website, let me see, I quoted, I have a quote from you on your website. <laughs> it says, I'm running for mayor because Little Rock has been standing still for too long. While we see other dynamic southern cities leading the way with fresh ideas, our leadership has just settled for the status quo. It's time for that to change. Most everything you said today, somebody came to you and asked you if you would take a job. You have, I don't think you've ever applied for a job in your life. Uh, even running for congressman, somebody came to you and said, I think you'd be good at this position. Did someone come to you on the mayor and say, I think you'd be good to this? Or did you just, just, there's this one that you just think, I'd be great at this and decided to do. So I love that question because I'd never really ever thought about it that way. And that's really interesting. Um, this one definitely came from me. And in fact, almost the opposite happened because when I just, when it got made known that I was looking at this, people were like, why would you want to be mayor? You know, you've already been in the legislature, and isn't that a step down to go from state government, city government? I, but see, I've never seen it that way at all, because to me, you know, all of the most innovative public policy in the United States right now is happening in the cities. You know, Congress right now is dysfunctional. They're not getting anything done in Washington. State government is hard, too. I can tell you from being there three terms. But if you look around the country, like I said, there's all this really, you know, exciting stuff happening at the city level. And then with Little Rock being our state's largest city, our capital city, our center of commerce, our center of media, all of that, the opportunity to do some really great things here is huge. And then, you know, being mayor, you're in an executive position, so you can really set a policy agenda. You can really get out there and work with people every day. And so for me, like the job itself sounds so exciting, and it was definitely something that I, nobody really came to me about, but I said, you know, this is really what I want to do. I feel very prepared for it. Does your term in the house is it different is it going to end when the mayor starts or are you going to have uh -huh. an overlap or are you going to have to quit one or no there's no overlap actually it's perfect because uh, all i did was not run for re-election to my house seat so my term will go through the end of this year and then on january 1 god willing i'll be sworn in as mayor of little rock What's so the first who's thing? running for your position in the house seat that you support so there's a democratic primary between tippy mccullough and ross noland and who should we vote for i'm not going to say who that who do you like more? who are you <laughs> voting for so it's there's a tradition that if you're the incumbent you really don't get involved you, you in the race involved. so i'm and by the way they're both excellent people so, so either way we, we we win no question about it okay Sorry, sorry, I just needed to know. No, it's that's okay. a good question. If you it were is. thinking it, somebody else was thinking it too. That's right. Um, what's the first thing you want to do when you get in office? That is a great... If you get in office. Well, there are lots and lots and lots of things I want to do, so I don't know what the first thing would be. I mean, we have definitely have to have a plan in place to get the crime situation under control in the city, and I think that there are a lot of you know great things that we can kind of put into place to do that. Um, I think we need to have a strong effort... Uh, to support our public schools here in Little Rock, and I've got a lot of ideas about how we can bring people together to partner with the school district, create some plans, you know, make sure we're getting an elected school board back in place, but give people the confidence that we are going to get our schools 
in a place where people don't want to move out of the city or, you know, feel like they need to put their kids in private schools. Do you like charter schools? Well, I don't think we need to wage any kind of battle against charter schools. I think what we need to do is focus on making our public schools the very best that they can be. And I think if we put our effort and our time into that, that, um, you know, the other problem kind of takes care of itself. What's the answer to crime? We had the police chief on this radio show Mm -hmm. about, I don't know, six months ago or something. And he said, it's not us. He said, people, it's, you know, we can't be parents to everybody. He said, parents have to parent their children Mm -hmm. and they want the cops to be parents. And he said, we can't be parents. Well, it's not a good enough answer though, because, you know, the, the reason why human beings organize themselves as units in the first place, like the beginning of politics thousands of years ago, was to ensure their own safety. I mean, it's basically safety in numbers. So the first priority of any government is the protection of its people. And so we have got to get the public safety piece right. Right now, it's hard to recruit people into the city um, to live here, um, number one, because of our crime problem. Number two, people don't feel safe. People are getting hurt, You know, especially our violent crime spiked in 2017 in a way. That was really remarkable. But wasn't that from one incident? No, 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 not at all. You need to look at the numbers of rapes, murders, assaults and battery, all of the things that the numbers literally spiked in a really significant way in 2017. But it's all because, you know, we've got two problems on the enforcement side. We allowed our police, you know, to have too many vacancies to where they're spread too thin and literally could not respond to the criminal activity that was happening. Uh, We cut back on community policing, which was an outstanding strategy that worked really well in Little Rock, helped us get our crime rate down the last time. Did we cut back on it because we're just understaffed? No, we cut back on it just because the decision was made. I mean, there there was no reason to understaff the police in the first place, and there's no reason to cut back on community policing. And and we need to, you know, make sure that we're back on that. We need more coordination among city departments so that it's not just the police that are, you know, in essence responding to spikes in criminal activity, but it's code enforcement when in certain neighborhoods abandoned houses are being used for criminal activity, or it's, you know, when there's a lack of lighting or or a lack of youth programs that are keeping kids off the street. I mean, we have the ability through good leadership to marshal the resources necessary to address crime where it occurs, but we need to have these measures in place. We need to be working with the state government to lower the caseloads for our parole officers, which are the highest in the country right now. So there are things we could be doing um, you know, a good example of that is the fact that the governor himself stepped in and created that task force, if you remember a few months ago, with federal, state, county law enforcement officials. And that actually did help make a dent, helped us get some arrests and, uh, you know, cut into some of the drug activity. But, I mean, I think it was kind of sad that the governor was the one who had to get involved in dealing with what, in essence, was a Little Rock issue. We need to take responsibility and we need to put a plan in place that everybody understands so they know stuff's happening and, you know, we're able to chip away at this thing a lot of people are moving to downtown little rock that's a good sign it's a great sign but you know i think that if you know you talk to people i mean people sometimes are nervous about going downtown to shop or whatever it is because they're just you know there are these incidents and we need to increase our police presence what about the homeless Seems well like that's a lot well that's a big issue but again i think we can take that on through better coordination among all of the resources that exist already in the city because you know, one of the things I, t- I talk to a lot of the folks that are involved with the nonprofits, the religious organizations, the government agencies that are all addressing different parts of the, the homelessness problem. And one thing they say, you know, the city could really do is help create more awareness of the resources that exist, you know, which helps, you know, kind of increase access to them. And then once we understand the universe of services that are there, 
you know, the, the city itself can maybe fill some of the gaps that, you know, aren't being filled, like maybe, you know, around temporary housing for people who just need a place to go to get back on their feet so they can have a place to live and get clean so they can go look for a job and all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, people are homeless for different reasons. That's you know, right. Sometimes they, you know, are evicted from their home. Sometimes they lose a job. Sometimes they've got a health problem or a mental health problem or they're trying to escape domestic abuse. And if you take each you know, person as a human being and you're able to, again, get them access to those services that in many cases already exist in the city, they just don't know they're there or don't know how to get to them, you know, the city can help do that. And it's worked in other cities around the country. So the police will the police know all the homeless people. So the mm -hmm. police go up to the homeless person that they know and because they know their issues could probably take them to somewhere? That's part of it. But actually, you know, if we had street teams that weren't actually the police um, that were doing some of that work, I think that would take some of the burden off the police. I think that's important for us to be able to do here in Little Rock is to not criminalize homelessness and not try to yeah. just push people out of sight, but to actually, you know, more efficiently get them what they need so that they are not homeless anymore. So tell everybody how they can get in touch with you. Well, the best thing is to go to my website, which is sabinformayor.com, S-A-B-I-N-F-O-R-M-A-Y-O-R.com. And there's um, all kinds of information and ways to get a hold of me there. Also, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. Facebook has your events. So your website, sabinformayor.com, has uh, about you and list your accomplishment. But if you want to know when your events are, go to join you on Facebook. Sure, yeah. And I guess that's just work saving. Uh-huh, yeah, it's it's pretty easy to find. I mean, I've got a weird first name, so it's W-A-R-W-I-C-K. Um, yeah, everybody kept asking me how you say your name. Warwick. Yeah, But it's Warwick. with a W in there. Yeah, I always tell people it's like Greenwich, Connecticut. You know, you don't it say is. the W in the middle. So. <laughs> it's exactly but like I that. answer to anything. <laughs> uh, what's your ultimate career goal do you have any idea you know i've had such an interesting and varied career i have no idea of you're still young leading. too well yeah i mean i'm 41 so i don't feel oh did you finally hit 40 i did i'm i'm over the hump because so. you've gotten every accolade and award you can get for under 40 and there's a lot of them <laughs> out there you know oh. such and such under 40 such and such under 40 not anymore yeah now i'm so, old that's man. still 40 is pretty darn young uh you don't know what you want to be when well, I just, you know, ultimately, I, I think as long as I'm doing work where I feel like I'm, you know, contributing to the community that I'm making where I live a better place, there are a lot of different ways to do that. I mean, you're a problem solver. I do like to solve problems. I can true. tell. And you're like, oh, give me the city of Little Rock. You're like rubbing your hands together. I want to solve <laughs> the problem. One word to sum you up. Um, determined. Like it. This is a great place to to end our interview right now. I've got a present for you that okay. Tim always gets together for everybody. Sorry for all that crackling noise to our listeners. Oh, that is so cool. It's a desk set. I know exactly what that is. And that's uh, the United States in the middle. Uh huh. Arkansas, because you love it, and New York, where you were born. That's really cool and very thoughtful. Thank, Thank you. You're welcome. I love that. Nobody's ever done that for me before. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. You're so interesting. I look forward to being <laughs> your friend forever. Thank you. Tim, who's our guest next week? Next week, you are going to be at your son's wedding, and we are going to play a repeat of the Mark Abernathy interview that we did, which was a really good interview. And you're mixing up my son's two weeks a month. Oh, wait, it's not his wedding. It's his graduation. That's right. It was the wedding last time. This That's time correct. it's graduation. That's right. <laughs> Get my kids straight, Tim. <laughs> it's Jack, right? It's Jack. Okay. He's he's getting his math. He's graduating from his master's, moving on to his PhD in New Mexico. So the whole family's going out there. 
it's, we've never had anybody do all that in our family. So That's awesome. He, yeah, we're proud of him. Yeah, Mark Abernathy, his, we decided to rerun him because his show is so entertaining. It was a good one. He's done a lot, a whole lot. Talk about a risk taker. And, I mean, mover, shaker. He's a chef. He's an entrepreneur. He's a great storyteller. Absolutely. And you will laugh. It, it's going to be, it's a funny one. He tells some funny stories. But, you know, when you work in the restaurant and, and uh, music business, which he does, he's got lots of funny stories. You have to have a sense of humor to do that. Absolutely. All right. Thanks again, Warwick. You're Thank all you. Warwick Saban. Good this luck. Was fun. Good luck. Thank you. If you have a great entrepreneurial story you would like to share, I'd love to hear from you. Send a brief bio and your contact info to questions at upyourbusiness.org. And finally, to our listeners, thank you for spending time with me. If you think this program's been about you, you're right, but it's also been for me. Thank you for letting me fulfill my destiny. My hope today is that you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening, and that it, whatever it is, will help you up your business, your independence, or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of flagandbanner.com. If you'd like to hear this program again next week, a podcast will be made available online with links to resources you heard discussed on today's show. Carrie's goal to help you live the American dream.